welcome to the Waste Not Want Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended, revitalising our natural resources by minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle. Then we can collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 20. The overarching theme for this week is joy, living well, laughing often and loving lots. Why? Well, it complements the transformational new moon energy and world laughter day that are both happening on Monday the 1st of May. And my gorgeous guest this week, joyologist Pat Armistead, who intentionally evoked joy as part of her daily diet, giving her the strength to ride the tidal wave of grief that could quite easily have destroyed her will to live. Proving how important it is to keep our focus on what we want to create, cementing the saying, where your focus goes, energy flows. A magical, intangible source of power that'll help us through times of what appear to be insurmountable obstacles. Make sure you take some time out to bask in the energy of this new moon, set your intentions, tap into the well of the imaginative mind to conjure up a vision of what your soul really desires. I've already been feeling the vibes and had a major surge of inspiration to help transform my mentoring business so it aligns with the essence of who I am today. Then I can bring you a unique service to help reclaim your sovereignty and magnetise your potential. Watch this space to see what transpires. Another way to re-energise yourself is through the sense of smell, or olfaction as it's called. Receptors in the nose transmit signals to the limbic system that controls our memory and emotions. I'm attending a perfumery workshop tomorrow to create my own perfume and discover more about the power of smell for healing with Sarah Dwyer who studied the ancient art of perfumery on her journey recovering from cancer. Well, you know how much I love penguins. Well, the little blue ones that we have here in New Zealand are having a hard time at the moment because the boulders where they make their nests are being removed to make way for the marina construction on Waiheke Island. Fortunately, the Protection Society Forest and Bird have applied to the High Court for a judicial review of the authority given to the Department of Conservation to Kennedy Point Marina Development to capture, handle and release the wee darlings because it's a total contradiction of the Wildlife Act that purports to protect native wildlife from disturbance that could cause significant harm. The upside is that the Conservation Minister has agreed to review the now 70-year-old Act. There's another construction story that's disrupting lives. This one highlights the hypocrisy of the government, the UN cultural agency UNESCO and a safari company in Tanzania all want to evict more than 150,000 Maasai people so they can use the conservation area that's already a designated World Heritage Site for, wait for it, conservation and get this, commercial hunting because they say it's overpopulated and having a detrimental effect on the wildlife. All I can say to this is WTF, 
are they insane? Since when did commercial hunting become a conservation practice? Never mind the total disregard for the indigenous tribes who have lived there for centuries, people who know how to live in harmony with nature and have a deep respect for the land. There's a link to a petition in the show notes. Now, while I'm on my soapbox, another thing that gets my goat is the length of time it takes to actually act on things. Take the UN Environmental Assembly meeting back in March, where 200 countries agreed to a plastics treaty. What I hadn't appreciated at the time was that their agreement was to create a draft treaty by, wait for it, 2024. Despite the expected levels of plastic in our oceans to double by 2030, it's beyond my comprehension as to why it takes so freaking long to create something concrete once it's agreed. Why don't they just get on and do it? Yes, research is vital, but we honestly don't need any more proof of its existence. It's staring us in the face. Just chuff and get on and do something to protect our precious planet. Wavering decision-making like this has been going on for years to establish marine protected areas in Antarctica. The Ross Sea being the first one six years ago, and the only one so far. The longer we wait, the worse it'll get, and the harder it'll be to clean up. Maybe we just wait till the fish are full of plastic, then there won't be the same demand to keep the waters open to the commercial fishing industries. Ironically, two Swiss scientists are currently carrying out new research on the surface and deep sea areas of the Southern Ocean to see to what extent Antarctic fish and invertebrates are being affected by microplastics. It's already been detected in human blood and lungs, so the results don't bode well for marine life. The common denominator for all this is the mighty dollar, which, when used wisely, can help enhance the environment and create jobs. Like the recent $3 million investment the New Zealand Environment Minister has given to restore the Poriro Harbour in Wellington. On a lighter note, the best news this week for me was when I heard British comedian Sarah Millican is heading to Canada in October, then New Zealand and Australia in early February 2023. I set my alarm to ensure I got some tickets before they sold out. Her humour is what you might class as inappropriate and definitely below the belt. Two reasons I love her to pieces. Now I'm waiting to hear whether Michael McIntyre is likely to head this way on his world tour. Imagine getting to see two iconic comedians in one year. Epic. You just can't beat a good belly laugh to make you feel on top of the world. Little wonder they say laughter is the best medicine and the language of the soul. Imagine if everyone got a daily dose. It would seriously make a dent in disease and depression statistics. Something my guest Pat Armistead can prove from her own experience after learning to use joy as the antidote to process her own grief. The time she spent with Patch Adams and Madame Katara put life into perspective, empowering her to pioneer an ingenious programme that infected everyone with joy. Now there's an epidemic worth spreading. Welcome to the show, Pat. It's an absolute delight to have a fellow ologist in the midst, although you have been a joyologist since the year 2001, I believe. Yeah. Way back then. <laughs> Way back then. Now, we've known each other 16 years, but we'll enlighten the audience as to how our journey started there. What was your decision or, uh, and in what place were you for the role to actually evolve? One of the things that's become apparent to me in more recent times is I didn't learn about joy by studying joy. Yeah, I learned yeah. about joy through my experience of shame, grief, 
and embarrassment. I had four years of losses, uh, some of which I probably have shared with you in the past. I lost my home, lost my business, relocated to New Zealand, owing $80,000, had 10 car accidents in the first 12 months or 18 months that I was there. None my fault, honest. (laughs) And um, a range of other things. And then my partner of 20 years left with another woman. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, really. I was in a really bad place. My doctor wanted to medicate me and I said, no, help me deal with my grief. And she wasn't the answer. So I went looking for another GP, found Robin Kelly, whom you would know, and I went to a grieving seminar at Starship Hospital, the children's hospital in Auckland, and sat with 400 parents who had lost their children. And then some probably three or four hours later, I had a conversation with a magician in South Australia who was inviting me to bring laughter yoga to New Zealand. And in that conversation, he had me laughing my head off, not because he was telling any jokes, but he was talking about laughter yoga. So that's the fun you're having when you're not really having fun. And in that conversation, there was a little lull, just that quiet moment. It's a comfortable space, right, just that little pause. And I got a message, and the message was, oh, my God, we've got radiology, pathology, hematology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. So there were none. (laughs) Uh, The next two weeks I was like a dog with a bone, not knowing, you know, where am I going to bury this thing? How will I get started? And I came across, I studied I did the course for to be able to deliver laughter yoga, came back and approached uh, a friend who had two rest homes and said, I have no idea what this will do, if anything, but I'd love to do a three-month pilot. What do you think? So I did that three-month to 29 residents and, and the staff. Uh, I went every day for half an hour. I didn't want to knock them out. <laughs> Um, And at the end of that three months, I declared them to be the world's first joyology department. Wow. After that, I knew if I walk away, the good that's been done, because they had started to take Mickey out of each other. They had started to take the Mickey out of their infirmity and they'd be going down the corridor on their walking frames and they'd be using, you know, some of the laughter yoga expressions and things as they passed each other in the corridor. And I thought, if I go away, it's just going to die away and fade off as things do. Right. And so I approached the owner. I said, I'd like to do another program now, a 12-month program. And this is about identifying the signature strengths of the residents to the best that we can and your staff building a very customised activities program. So over that 12-month period, I believe I created the most extensive and varied activities program, certainly in New Zealand and maybe elsewhere. And, you know, when I look back, we got lots of media and press because of what we were doing in the rest home. That whole thing eased me through my grief. Those 29 residents loved me. They never judged me. I would sometimes in those early days be crying as I drove there and I'd tidy myself up and go in and run this laughter workshop. I got even then. They're not judging. 
you know, I've had all of this stuff and left with nothing, right? Just like it's all gone, everything I had is gone, and they don't care. And that was transformational for me, and they really showed me that there were two ladies who would wait at the door every morning, Joan and Christina, and both deaf, and I would be approaching the door, and you can hear them. They're going, oh, here she comes. I wonder what she's got on today. I wonder what hat she'll bring today. We just don't know, even in our worst moments, what we can create for others when we just step out. It was a remarkable period. And when my entire world had disappeared, they came in. My family hadn't spoken, still hasn't, for well over 35 years now. And yet here we were in having fun, but also in deep communion. We got to know each other. And the same with the staff. And uh, when I did that 12-month program, the manager of the rest home said, please, to the owner, she said, please don't put Pat in the uniform. Let Pat come however she wants (laughs) and let that flow. So I had freedom of expression, permission from a typically tight institution, and she had faith even though neither of us knew where it was going to go. I think that's a big thing, you know, because for me, you know, World Laughter Day, a bit like positive psychology, we take it on as meaning laughing all the time and like ignoring all the bad stuff. And but really, from your story, it's actually, and I love the fact that it's grounded in, in grief, basically, and being able to manage things. And that is a huge part of it. And as you said earlier on, where the residents were taking the piss out of each other. And we have to learn to do that to ourselves as well as others without, obviously without being offensive. So there's boundaries and things, but ultimately it's about being human and that connectivity. And as you were talking, although I know the majority of your story, I still get absolute chills. There was no expectation. There was being open to exploring things. And how healing it can be to be grounded and share. And as you say, turn up having cried yourself to laugh. I always purport, you know, laughter is the best medicine because we met in 2006 at the Humor in Business Awards that you created. And again, I always thought that was such an amazing thing because I'd only been in New Zealand a couple of years. And particularly as a, an English woman, they're very staunch and constrained in the way they do things. And one does things professionally. So for someone to suggest that there could be humor in business and doing business with other people was amazing. So I put in my application and I'm not sure if you remember, but it epitomized to me about me attempting to look professional, but I spent hours creating this PowerPoint. And ultimately it went tits up on the day because it decided not to work. And I wasn't a great techie at the time. So I had to ad lib it and I didn't have a script or anything, but I shared with the audience that I actually felt was scripting It was very constraining, a bit like having sex with a condom. And this woman in front of me just burst out laughing, nearly wet herself. And she said, it's going to be really hard to take you seriously because all I can see is you at the front there with a condom on your head. (laughs) And these kind of 
things really break the ice. It's being real with other people. And I think, you know, your background is in nursing as well. Did you recognize at the time the benefits of laughter or did that come out in your laughter yoga courses? I already knew some. But yeah, I got a much more, much deeper and more expansive understanding. You know, I just, Madame Kataria invented laughter yoga in 1995. 1995 was an amazing year. There was Madame Kataria, laughter yoga, Patch Adams and his movie, Daniel Goldman, the uh, emotional intelligence man, Seligman and Authentic Happiness. All of these came through in around the same time and we're still rolling out. The world is not totally au fait with all of those things, but here we are 25, 26 years later and how timely were all of those things. I don't know how laughter yoga is going in New Zealand, but here in Australia, I don't do that much anymore. Uh, If I'm doing a workshop, I'll include a portion. Uh, but there are others who are just devoted totally to the practice. And it's just had huge growth through COVID experience. But it's not just about the laughter. It's not just about doing laughing activity or laughing exercise. It's about connection. So how does it affect us, the laughter? Because they say laughter is the best medicine. So physiologically and emotionally, uh, how does it affect us? Number one, it's a good workout for the body, right? The lungs super inflate, right? So you're emptying the lungs really well. Your heart's getting a bit of a compression with that happening. And your total body is getting a workout. And what that's doing, whether you're laughing for real or whether you're doing laughter exercises, and there are also other things, but we'll come to that in a minute, the the brain releases serotonin. Yep. And the endorphins. Yep. And, you know, we we get that incredible feel-good effect. You might remember many years ago, Candice Pert's Molecules of Emotion. She was the first scientist to really explore what happens when you're in different moods, what happens when you're in different emotions on the body. So she did extensive research that explores why you feel the way you feel. Mm-hmm. And it's very significant. You know, her work was landmark. In a man's world, what she proposed and then researched was how do our thoughts and emotions affect our health? Are our bodies and minds distinct from each other or are they interconnected? Well, we know now that thought and practice very much influences the body. But it's not just laughter. If we watch a beautiful wildlife movie, uh, such as I know many of you would enjoy, it creates that same feel-good effect, right? Those beautiful visions, the scenery, the colour, the experience of landscape, even though it's flat on the screen, all evokes the, the same emotions that release these same chemicals. Yep. So, you know, the degree to which we place ourselves in uh, positions where our environment pleases us, right? even if we're moving through difficult times, like the last two years, we've been very limited. Uh, we've been trapped indoors, mm-hmm. so to speak. And when I moved back to Australia from New Zealand, I only bought minimal things. So in my home, I just 
exactly the minimal pieces of furniture that I love and my art. So I tell my clients, actually, when you come and see me here, you actually get an immune boost (laughs) because of that, right? You walk into a pleasing environment. And I, I think our role a bit now is waking people up to that. Yes. I talk about being good human and being good human to me is about being appropriately responsive or not. <laughs> and I learned that on the tour with Patch Adams in 2004. He was sharing with me his mother, who's a diabetic, had had one limb removed as a result of poor circulation in her leg. And um, he was there when she woke up from the surgery and her eyelids are fluttering open and he's got his hand on hers and he's patting her hand and he leaned in, he's got a big booming voice, and he leaned in and he said, well, Ma, now you know what it's like to have one foot in the grave. (laughs) So only Patch could say that to his mother, right, that it has context. Yep. And they have association. Yep. And to do that, we so need to be present. You know, moment that connection moment. that you were talking about earlier, because I know, you know, that you can gauge when it is to do that inappropriate line or whatever you deliver. Sometimes I do put my foot in my mouth and it is not appropriate. Um But nine times out of 10, you do gauge it because you've created that connection with someone. There's trust, there's boundaries and things like that. And you know it's not going to be offensive. Um, So you wouldn't go up to say that to someone you didn't know, but he had that bond with his mother. I'm just going to step back there because you just nonchalantly said your trip with um, Patch Adams in 2004. How did you get to go on this? I mean, obviously, your interest in laughter and from the laughter yoga, you came across Patch Did you know of him beforehand and what inspired you to be a part of his tour? Yep, I did know of him and admired him and his work. But I met an elderly lady who had toured with Patch. Uh, We met online and met, met up for a coffee in the real world. She showed me photos from her trip through Russia's orphanages and there was one photo in particular of a little boy with bilateral hair, lip and cliff palette. And he was about six and he was being bathed in a bowl by two American nurses who had come out to special him for six months. There was no chance at that time that this boy would have the corrective surgery. And when I looked, I mean, I get goosebumps now telling you, when I looked at that photo and I thought about New Zealand or Australia, by the time that child went to school, they would have had perhaps several corrective surgeries, uh, and they would look perfectly normal and be normal, and off they would go to live their lives. And I just got the polar opposites of our abundance. So it was that. I went home from that conversation with her, and I searched for about 24 hours asking people, what's his phone number, what's his phone number? (laughs) Finally got it, and I rang and said I'd like to go on a tour. And this is significant. He said to me, don't come because of me, Pat. Come because you wish to find and express your clown self. Come because you'd like to experience for yourself the true disparity between rich and poor. And come because you'd like to make at least one Russian friend. 
And so I fundraised for a year. The trip was $10,000 plus airfares, so fairly hefty. And here's the, the thing about goodwill and leaving behind you a trail. The first couple of years, like when I was doing those pilot programs and developing what's geology really going to be, yeah. Uh, I gave many talks to inter-aged care, people with muscular dystrophy, people with arthritis, all manner of chronic painful conditions. I probably gave 200 over a couple of years. Those people, pensioners, sent me in the mail 5 and $10. I would come home week after week and there'd be a little bundle of mail with $5 notes. They heard that I was going uh, and they contributed. One associate sponsored me for 10 weeks and her and her partner gave me $270 a week for 10 weeks. Wow. That was their contribution. So sometimes we can think the path is enormous. Yep. But if we oh, just get present to and own what we've been doing, then we create a path whereby people will not see you fall. And it's that connection that you were talking about. So, so important. Sowing those seeds and freely giving of yourself. And as you say, you don't realise the little shifts, that smile that you give out or the time that you give to somebody, what impact it has on them. And the gratitude comes back to you. And the world opens to you because it is a part of your destiny, really. Yes. While I was doing those pilots, one day I got into bed with an elderly lady there. I had always threatened her, I'm going to come and get into bed with you one day, and she poo-pooed me. She was 93. So I arrived in my <clears throat> Little Miss Naughty pyjamas, a wool wig, freckles, teddy bear dressing gown and slippers, and said, move over. And I'd already prearranged what happened that day. So I said to her, so what do you fancy for breakfast? I said, and she said, oh, we have porridge. And I said, well, not today. And I rang the bell and ordered bacon and eggs for two, which I'd already organised. <laughs> and um, so that arrived and went away. And then I said, now, if I remember it correctly, I said, you like mochaccino. Oh, we'd never get that yet. I said, we do today. And I rang the bell and to Marcocino. And so the day progressed till about 10 o'clock and the staff had had enough by then. Yeah. Number one, no idea, was I allowed to be in bed with Goldie? <laughs> and what? how come she was allowed to be mucking around and we've got to work hard? So the next nurse that came to the door told me off, it's all right for you, Pat, but, you know, we've actually got work to do here. And so I got out of bed, put my little dressing gown on, grabbed my teddy and I walked out into the corridor and I lay down on the floor and I chucked a tanty like any self-respecting two-year-old can <laughs> until they relented. And the day proceeded like that. And at the end, I went into the staff at Changeover and I said, you're probably wondering why I've been in bed with Goldie. Well, here's what I learned. And I shared what I'd learned about Goldie's life sitting in bed with her. While I'm telling that story, there's a knock on the office door and Goldie's daughter pokes her head around the corner and goes, oh, sees me and pulls the face. 
she said, Mum was just telling me she's been in bed with a clown all day and I thought she was losing it. <laughs> Love it. Goldie's daughter was giving me messages. She used to make me cards. She called me Patch Adamstead. Oh, wow. And she made cards with that. So there was a like a lead-in of 18 months between those experiences and actually going on tour with Patch. Oh, my goodness. That's really spooky, eh? That's amazing. I'd never seen the connection between the two. Phenomenal. Yeah. Amazing. And the other thing, when my partner left, I was devastated. And about three months later, I woke up one morning and I'd lost the pigment out of my skin up to the elbows, gone white overnight. And I had a butterfly shape on my chest. So I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, my God. And I remembered in the movie Patch Adams, when Patch's girlfriend is shot and killed, he takes a battered old briefcase and goes and looks out over where he's going to build Gesundheit. He puts that briefcase down and a monarch butterfly lands on that briefcase and then flies up and lands on his chest. So I look in the mirror, see this butterfly shape on my chest, remember that part of the movie. You know, a few years later, I tour with him. I so get goosebumps again. We're connected. I knew you were obsessed with monarch butterflies, but I never knew the story. That is yeah, so, amazing. So there was that transformative moment, you know. I had lost everything, including a partner who I never dreamed would leave with another woman, and yet all I did was face it. Yes. And in going to it, it disappears. It transforms. I think that's the important message is insofar as managing life and the bad times is that energy, because it is all energy, that energy changes shape because of the what you're creating with your mind, with your um, with the thoughts and the feelings and your environment. It doesn't get pushed down. Yes, it there will always be um an essence of it within us, but it tends to be the mind that we can expand it. But by transforming it through experiences, it really changes things and allows us to move on as opposed to pushing it down and something arises and it then erupts and we've got double the shit to deal with basically, hey. When I was doing that first pilot, the owner allowed me to bring in a psychologist who was a rhythm therapist. So she was very expensive and I was surprised that she said yes, but she came She came for 10 weeks. So once a week for 10 weeks, they had an hour's experience of drumming and other music. There was one lady there who was in her early 60s, burned out alcoholic, kind of had two neurons left and they rarely met. She could feed herself but needed to be reminded, there's your knife and fork, have your dinner. And she and I got on well. She also suffered anxiety attacks from time to time. So on day four of this rhythm series, all the time along to this, she was not getting anything, not getting a beat, not kind of being able to physically connect in. But this day she had two sticks and suddenly she found a beat. Well, her face lit up like Christmas. She was just doing this beat, right, 
a repetitive rhythm. At the end of that workshop, she came to me, and this is the longest, one of the longest sentences she's ever said. She said, I need to ring my husband on Waiheke Island. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay, will you stay with me? Of course, darling. So she rings him. And in essence, she said, I know you come here from time to time to visit me, but I don't want you to come at all anymore. I know what you did to my daughter, your repeated sexual abuse of my daughter, and I know my part in it because I was also always so stupidly drunk, I let it happen. So I don't want you to come anymore. It was a little bit longer than that. but Whoa. She hung up, turned to me, and she said, can I see a priest? And I'm like, darling. <laughs> so we called a minister who came pretty much straight away. And I, I stayed. I didn't want to go home until this experience was done. And about two hours later, she came out. And that aspect of her that had opened up to do that healing, right, to have that conversation with him, own her own place in it, mm. and then do whatever she did with the priest. When she came back out, she was actually closed back down to that woman who needed to be told where her knife and fork were. But she never, ever had another anxiety attack. Wow. She was at peace. Wow, that and is just amazing. I get increasingly now. We've had this dreadful two years and it ain't over. Mm -hmm. um, so much of it we don't have mastery over, but our pathway is heal yourself. Go within, heal yourself, do whatever you need to do in whatever fashion so that you are like a clean vessel and so it is that we can clean this mess up <laughs> uh, essentially. Because if it's muddy water, we're not going to see anything. So is there anything you would recommend for people to experience? You know, if you are isolated on your own, what can people do to help themselves in the process? Because it's a lonely process, isn't it? And it's not going to change overnight. That's the big thing. And for me, one of the things I like this podcast, you know, it is about evolving and thinking that tomorrow I'm going to change my life and drop everything that I used to do and think it's going to miraculously change it, recognising it's a process and choosing something that's important to you. And as we set, set out at the beginning, laughter is an amazing medicine. We can't necessarily, well, if you go to laughter yoga, you can um, make yourself laugh. But I always say, find something that make a comedian, because there was some, um, a chap, now I can't remember his name, I did look it up, but it's gone again, who actually healed himself through watching humour, didn't he? Um, Norman Cussons. That's it, yeah, yes, yes. Norman Cussons had this condition called ankylosing spondylitis, incredibly painful condition for which back then they said there was no cure. So he was a medical journalist and he decided he wanted to experiment and his doctor agreed to support him. So he was hospitalised, took mega doses of vitamin C and watched comedy all his waking hours. He just exposed himself to humour or good humour in some form and healed himself. 
And he actually did that twice because it did reoccur some years later. Right. And he was awarded a um, complimentary PhD for that work he did in those years because he applied himself very much from a research background and produced a lot of papers that validated what it was that he was doing. So he was another landmark. I remember when I was in New Zealand, there was a man who was with cancer who was essentially at death's door and the family asked for him to be given intravenous vitamin C and they refused. Long story short, the family kicked up quite a, a doing and he eventually got it and he went home. We can't be a stand for things if we don't know who we are. So my experience through the lockdowns, I live alone. I'm an extrovert. Right? I don't like. <laughs> I'm not a good space. So I just knew I have two peak moments in my life. One is when I speak and the lights go on for someone in the room. And the other is when I paint or create. And then I, I don't need anybody. So that's not going to be everyone's peak moments, but I invite the audience to consider what are yours? Find two because we need the contrast. Yep. You know, so I found myself online. I created a new podcast called Take a Break and I just fit into that all manner of positive psychology, you know, dealing with grief, dealing with loneliness, dealing with loss, illness, etc. So here I was delivering into that. And even though I only had, you know, faces in windows, <laughs> it provided that platform. I just committed, I'm, I need to paint one or two hours a day. As I did, the first major piece that I painted was demonstrating the level of discord in the brain. It started out as maybe I'll make a mandala, but it wasn't a mandala in the end. It was like, this is it. This is the discord and the disconnect the mess that's going on in our brains at this moment as we face this turmoil. Wow. This is it. This is the dis, what, what's that word? Combobulation. <laughs> you um, love that word, yeah. That reflects the um, what you were saying earlier about their expectation. We can go in with ideas, but we really need to learn to let go and allow well when you're in the in the midst of it you you can you can go with an idea but be um allow it to progress how it should be hey yeah the next piece was a piece i just i pretty much painted out of the tube all right it had 17 layers i just got the tube of paint different colors it's all beautiful bright colors some i used a scraper and created you know scrape bits and others I just left there as a big doodle it's one of the best paintings I've ever done 17 layers and so I got it's like I couldn't have accessed that without because that I didn't even think about either I just let it happen yeah but I couldn't have accessed that if I hadn't looked at the messy bit that was in my brain because it was my brain as well you know I couldn't mm -hmm. have, I couldn't have created it if I didn't have a level of that so putting that on the page, and it's like journaling. When you journal and express how you're feeling, put it on the page, you've tidied the mind. Yes. You know, it's like tidying your desk. So, and then the next piece, so there were three that happened. I called it Rising Consciousness, and it's two heads cut out like jigsawry, and they're coming together up the canvas to meet at the top. 
So it's like unity consciousness, that rising up. And again, I, I just saw it's like we can't get there unless we do the work. And how do we do that? We are having the most genial conversation. We don't hear that word genial much, but you don't have to be laughing your head off to be in good spirits. No. Yeah. You know, we're, you know oh, I bet if we could measure our both our pathologies at the moment, we, we would find raised levels. Yeah. And it'll continue for several hours afterwards. Yeah. By merit of the level of trust, the connection, we're both interested in each other. And you are present to me. Yes. Yes. That is a biggie. Yes, definitely. Um, so important. Yeah. And this is one thing I love about the podcast because I'm getting to meet some fascinating, it's a bit of self-indulgence, the whole process. Um, like you, when you started your podcast over COVID, for me, it was about reaching a bigger audience and sharing my message, but it was also about bringing together many aspects of myself. But in the process, not only have I learned how to do various things technologically, but I'm meeting some amazing human beings and reconnecting with other people. And the whole thing is, it boils down to what we were saying at the beginning, how we have to learn to be real and use that connection to connect with other people and not put people up on a pedestal. Everybody has a story to share. And we, there are aspects of ourselves that we can't necessarily see because we're bogged down in some kind of sadness, grief or whatever, but it's really bringing to light the beautiful parts of ourselves and they are so very, very simple and it's walking through that. And, you know, if you are on your own, you're feeling it, it's really to look back and find that essence of joy and just sit in it for four or five minutes. Go and sit out in that, watch a piece of grass move, watch um, the trees, the leaves, listen if you can and see, I did yoga with a, beautiful soul that she hadn't taught for nine years and when she started up again I got so excited because I really find her voice sits beautifully and I can go to a much deeper place and one of the exercises is the listening outside and bringing it closer and how many other things you hear it's all our senses and expanding that we are so much more than we give ourselves credit for. We create a role for ourselves. Like you said, you were a joyologist. But underneath that was an expansion of yourself. It was a door was opening for you to experience something to really express the ultimate part of yourself um, and who you are. And like you say, it is the joyology. For me, it was enthusiologist. I'm an eternal optimist. And it was, I called myself that before I, I'd even heard of your own name. So it was lovely, the connection that we actually later created. And I think really it's just to simplify things. And although tomorrow is World Laughter Day, it's having that ability to laugh at yourself for all the fuck ups and faux pas that you've experienced. They've actually a beautiful part of who you are and have allowed you to grow. You've reminded me, I think it was Deepak Chopra wrote a book called Why Is God Laughing? Oh, okay. Not heard that one. And the subtitle is Because He Gets the Joke. <laughs> Good one, yeah. You know, the joke of our humanity, where we go and how we behave and what we do when we're not connected and we're in this disconnect place. And if we could see how disconnected we are at times, we'd yeah. change in an instant. 
but we often can't see it. So for me, a big part of what I'm doing is, is I want to shift perception. So I dare to be inappropriate sometimes, knowing <laughs> this will get the bristles up or whatever. But I pre-frame it so they know it's coming, you know, especially in the business context. I show the photos of that day in bed with the elderly lady yep. when I do business presentations and I tell them, you've got to get into bed with your customers. You've got to find out what makes people tick. And yep. if they remember nothing else from that presentation, it would be that. Yeah, absolutely. Because a business is a business and you can create whatever you want, but ultimately it's all about the connection that you make to someone. And myself as a as a mentor, it's detaching yourself to the point where it doesn't if somebody doesn't connect with me I don't take it personally we're not on the same vibration and that is fine but equally and we have to learn to accept that that we don't like everybody and not everybody likes us and just to let it go but as you say it's treating within business treating everyone as a human being being present with them and listening as to what their strengths are and what they, how they can contribute. It's all a thread, isn't it? It's how we can pull it all together and make something so much bigger. And so my guest last week was um, David Martin. And the thing that he talked about was the covalence and how two different entities are the essence of who they are. And when they come together, they create something that they couldn't do on their own. And this really rolls beautifully off the back of it. I mean, you were there with me when we watched Future Dreaming. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's mm. phenomenal. And it's so bloody simple because we make life so complicated, don't we? As the joyologist, I am no different to how I have ever been. What I achieved was conscious awareness. When I first started nursing, first man I ever bed bath was a man by the name of Bob Hall. A construction crane had fallen on him. He was literally flattened, 35 broken bones. They said he's not going to live. Four hours later, he's still alive in casualty and they risked taking him to theatre, knowing he could die on the table. So Bob didn't die on the table. And as they're trolling him back to recovery, the conversation changed and they said, well, poor beggar, he'll probably be a vegetable. So Bob woke up in recovery and revealed indeed he wasn't a vegetable. And so the conversation changed again. And they said, well, poor beggar, he'll never walk. Bob Hall walked on two sticks to my graduation ceremony, stood up the back of the room, and when the ceremony proper was done, he said, I've actually got something I'd like to say. So, And I'm really trembling in my boots now because I've got an idea what it is. And he came forward and he had this big scroll. It's about three feet long. And he read out all the tricks and pranks that I'd played on him over the years. Some of them not very nice. I got into trouble with matron often. <laughs> and every now and again, my mother's sitting in the front row and she went, oh, Patricia, you didn't. When he was finished, he turned to me and he said, you don't know what you did. I kind of got it back then, but I really got it in 2001 at the height of all those losses. I showed up for him unconsciously competent, right? I was my natural impish self. No one came to any harm. I got into a bit of trouble sometimes, but I saw Bob Hall every single day he was in hospital, whether I was rostered on his floor or not. How long was he there for? Three years. Wow. 
it's still I've heard the story before still chokes me up and brings tears to my eyes it's all about lifting someone's spirit isn't it it's absolutely phenomenal and you know you don't have to be you know a comedian or yep all right <laughs> I had the guile the innate sense to know that like I wasn't but I wasn't consciously doing it. I just did it like yeah. I didn't plan it that's a huge part of it is actually not to think too much about what we're doing because we take life too seriously um, and just get on and do it and better to have done than to to not have done and to realize that it was inappropriate or whatever it happened to be kind of thing you know if you make a mistake it really doesn't matter just learn from it and move on sort of thing but it is all ultimately about that human connection to ourselves and sharing that with other people we could go on for hours because you've got some amazing experiences but you're such a beautiful soul is there although you talked about many people is there a person or a book that has really influenced you over the years um the book is authentic happiness this is martin seligman all of these psychologists worked for many years to try and create positive psychology yeah uh with a big, a big job and at the early point, one of his colleagues said to Martin Seligman, this is really boring, Marty. You have to put some intellectual backbone into this. So I'm going to read from his book. Two weeks later, I glimpsed what the backbone might be while weeding in the garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess, even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm actually not very good with them. I am goal-oriented and time-urgent. When I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds in the air, dancing and singing. Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her and she walked away. Within a few minutes, though, she was back saying, Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from when I was three until I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing that I've ever done. So if I can stop whining, you can stop being a grouch. Wow. That is profound. Absolutely. So that was the epiphany for him. He, He writes, in terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. Here's the guru of positive psychology owning <laughs> yes. that he's a grouch. Yeah. Awesome. I had spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. In that moment, I resolved to change. And he goes on to talk about the kickoff for his role was to nurture that precocious strength. Brilliant, yeah. Bring out the inner child, hey. Reflects everything we've been talking about, not taking life so seriously, you know, with that goal-orientated thing. It's about collaboration. So do you have a favourite quote at all? I do. It's from Anthony Robbins. So I don't know all of these off by heart. It's on the first page of Dreams of Destiny. We all have dreams. We all want to believe deep down in our souls that we have a special gift, that we can make a difference, that we can touch others in a special way and that we can make the world a better place. 
At one time in our lives, we all had a vision for the quality of life that we desire and deserve. Yet for many of us, those dreams have become so shrouded in the frustrations and routines of daily life, we no longer make an effort to accomplish them. For far too many, the dream has dissipated, and with it, so has the will to shape our destinies. Many have lost that sense of certainty that creates the winner's edge. My life's quest has been to restore the dream and make it real, to get each of us to remember and use the unlimited power that lies sleeping within us. Dream big, laugh often, hey. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So when you are in a funk, how do you re-energise yourself? I don't know if you ever saw me doing an improvised routine to Celine Dion's song, I Am Alive. No. So each morning I play that song, I Am Alive, right? When I'm doing a performance, speaking like live, I act it out and I do it without being introduced. So the MC will say, I have a surprise for you. I come from behind my banner, they start the music and I do my thing. The audience are going, what the? <laughs> and the MC then reads exactly what I've given them as the introduction and the first line is, it's hard to believe that it was a day when Pat Armistead was not glad to be alive. So we are not just positive. The, the importance of having the polar opposites because one shines light on the other. And I've been doing that for years. I had an acting coach help me do that improvised routine, polished. <laughs> I used to be able to do it backwards. I don't know if I could now. I just relied on my body language. One woman said to me, when you did the beating heart thing in that particular part, I burst into tears. We lose track of our power. Was I scared to do that improv routine? You bet. First time, I was terrified. What if they don't like it? What if they don't get it? <laughs> so now it's not just a song I listen to. It's this multifaceted expression of who I am. And then just the key words, you know, here I am again. Today's here and I'm alive. One of the things that came through was there can be tears of joy. Laughter and happiness is not just about smiling and giggling and things like that. It, it hits the nail on the head, like as you were saying, that woman expressing the heart. And ultimately what it is, it's that we've made a connection to ourselves and to what that other person and it's resonating with us and it helps us to blossom. So to round things off, if I was your fairy godmother, not that you probably need one because you'd be able to create it all yourself, is is there one thing that you would like to change in the world? And if so, what would it be and why? All through high school, I excelled at art and English. Uh, when I left school, I wanted to be an artist, but my mother told me to get a proper job. Uh, your art's lovely, dear, but I think you should get a proper job. And so it was that I ended up nursing. Then I was in advertising. But now I see I have learned how to harness my compassionate and creative self to bring joy. So I have a few sayings that, that have accrued over this last 20 years, but I say to the audience all the time, if you take away nothing else from this presentation, you are here to bring joy, not just into your own life, but into the lives of others. So in order for that to happen, I want to help people shift how they see the world. So 
I want to help them take off those lenses that interfere with good vision um, so that they can see what's really there, not what their mind has made up. I want to awaken people to the possibility they could be fully self-expressed this lifetime. Your goal um, that you wrote on your website when you started off as a geologist was by 2020 you wanted to convert a global pessimism to optimism so people have fun along with what they do so you know it is the essence of who you are we're talking you know 21 years ago it's still there you've done it and you will continue to create it until such time as you transpire and evolve into something else where you will un- undoubtedly influence people from a, um, an- another world. <laughs> so I would like to honour you, Pat, for your mega contribution to life, to people's lives up until this point, and undoubtedly will happen for many, many more. And thank you so much for joining me today. Bless you. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye for now. Wow, what an incredible woman. Every time I talk to her, I discover another little gem that she has to reveal. Such tenacity. Proof that a life full of joy is the way to add meaning and a sense of fulfillment. Her philosophy actually reminds me of a poem that Spike Milligan wrote called Smile. I'll read it out to you now. Smiling is infectious. You catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. I passed around the corner and someone saw my grin. When he smiled, I realised I'd passed it on to him. I thought about that smile, then realised it's worth. A single smile, just like mine, could travel round the earth. So, if you feel a smile begin, don't leave it undetected. Let's start an epidemic quick and get the world infected. I've got a few things to juggle before I decide the order of my guests over the next few weeks, so you'll just have to make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, my YouTube channel or the Waste Not What Not Facebook page, so you don't miss out on the surprise. I've just realised that the theme tune to um, the podcast is actually entitled Joy. How cool is that? Anyway, don't forget to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at So until next week, live well, laugh often and love much. Dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. <laughs>